Amen. So I uh, shared uh, earlier, but uh, my family and I were able to go see Avengers Endgame yesterday. Anybody seen uh, Endgame yet? So good, so good. Uh, and uh, and I, I will warn you, uh, I, I put out a PSA on social media, but if you do not want spoilers, please stay away from my son, Ethan. He has spoilers for days, all right? So, so he will tell you more about the Avengers Endgame and more about the Marvel Cinematic Universe than you ever wanted to know. So be, be, be advised. Um, but we, we love stories about people overcoming impossible odds. I mean, when, when, we, when, we, when we left off in Infinity War, I mean, Thanos snaps his fingers and some really, really bad stuff happens. And Thanos represents death, right? He represents loss and he represents evil. And, and, uh, and, and it seems like everywhere we look in the real world, it seems like death is winning. It seems like uh, we, we look everywhere and it seems like evil's winning and death is winning. And, and so there's a reason why people have lined up and laid out $2 billion over the past two weeks to watch Avengers Endgame. It's because we want to believe there is a world where good triumphs over evil. We want to believe there's a world where death, you know, gets punched in the face. We, we're looking for hope. Even as we, um, uh, as we, as we line, line up to, to shell out our money and to sign up for a big commitment, three-hour commitment, uh, we're looking for an escape from our own brokenness even as we're clinging to faith that there's a world somewhere where evil can be overcome. And so we love stories about people facing impossible odds, um, especially stories that involve true heroism, you know, and self-sacrificial love. And, but we're much less excited when we're the one facing impossible situations. Have you noticed that? We love movies about other people overcoming impossible situations, but when it's you or me that's the one facing an impossible situation, we don't like that. In fact, in fact we despise it. We hate it. And when we, um, when we run into an impossible situation, uh, that reveals something about us. Um, an encounter, what I'd like for us to see in, in, in Daniel 2 today is that an encounter with the impossible exposes the impotence of our idolatry. That's a lot of words, but let's break that down. When we encounter the impossible, when we come face to face with something that we can't fix, we can't overcome, um, what, it, what gets exposed is all the things that we have been relying on to carry us through life up to that point. Maybe our idol has been our health, and that, uh, or our idol has been a relationship, or our idol has been... Um, how much money we have in the bank, or how hard we can work, or and maybe we come into a situation where that idol gets stripped away, or maybe just that, 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 that we come to a point in our life where that, that thing that we've relied on so long, it can't fix us anymore. It can't heal us anymore. It can't get us out of this current impossible situation. And so that idol that we've been relying on becomes exposed as being impotent, as being powerless, and it, and it can't fix me, can't heal me. And, and sometimes it feels like one impossible situation it feels like we're, we're, we face is it feels like sometimes impossible to uh, live in our Babylon. And I love our country, I love America, but America's a Babylon, okay? It, we live, it's the best Babylon on earth. But Babylon represents in Scripture a, a kingdom of this world that is in opposition to the kingdom of God. And Daniel was carted off from, from Jerusalem all the way to his Babylon, and we're living in ours. And, 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 and just like Daniel was in exile, we saw last week, we are exile strangers. Um, that's the status of a Christian. Um, exiles in, in this world living uh, for something greater. And, and, and it may seem impossible to live in our Babylon and be faithful to God. It may feel impossible to live in this world and, and, and not conform 
to it. And yet when we look through the pages of this book, we see an example of a man who by God's grace, through faith, was faithful to God. A man who by grace, through faith, um, did not conform. So who's Daniel? Daniel's life tells us, his life is a witness that you can live a faithful life in exile. His life is a witness, not a perfect life, but his life is a witness that you can, by God's grace, through faith, you can live a faithful life in exile, surrounded by pagan influences, surrounded by pagan propaganda, surrounded by pagan indoctrination, by God's grace, through faith, you can be faithful in exile. George Washington once said, he said, it few men have the virtue to withstand the highest bidder. In other words, most people have a price. And we saw in Daniel 1, that when all the, the great food uh, from the king's table is set before Daniel, he did not have a price. That, that, that uh, he, he wasn't willing to sell out to the king. He wasn't able, willing to sell out to Babylon. Daniel's name means God is my judge. Daniel, God is my judge. In other words, God for Daniel is where he finds his standards. Uh, God is, is, is who determines what he believes. God is who stand, who is a standard that determines what he does. He's not coming up with this on his own. He's not coming up with it based on what Babylon tells him. God is his standard. God is his judge. He's a man of conviction, not just a man of opinions. You know, Daniel drew a line where, where it came to the king's food because that king's food most likely was polluted by idolatry. But see, Daniel had drawn that line before he ever sat down at the king's table. To be a man of conviction meant that Daniel had drawn his line before he got put in the situation. He knew ahead of time, he determined in his heart that he would not be defiled with the king's food. He determined ahead of time where his line was. You know, some of us are waiting until we get in the moment and then we're going to decide what we're going to do. You know what I'm talking about? Wait till you get in that uh, emotional affair. Wait till you get in that uh, situation where you're tempted by, uh, by, by, by your addiction. Uh, get in that situation where you have the opportunity to cheat on a test or, or sacrifice your integrity at work. And you say, you know what, I'm just going to kind of leave the options open. But Daniel drew the line. He knew what he was going to do before he got in the situation because the line had already been drawn. Before, before we go to middle school, before we go to high school, before we go to college, we need to study the life of Daniel and decide what lines do I need to draw now, not just wait till I get in that situation and decide on the fly. He decided ahead of time. His devotion to God, he was determined, he was a man of conviction, but his devotion to God fuels his character. His devotion to God fuels his values, his worldview, and his daily life. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary of China, once said, Christ is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. And when it comes to your life and mine, he's either Lord of all of it or none of it. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. So Daniel gets put in an impossible situation. In fact, the whole kingdom of Babylon gets put in an impossible situation. And this impossible situation in Daniel 2 is going to reveal where everyone's loyalties are. That's what the impossible does. The impossible reveals where our confidence is placed. The impossible reveals uh, where our loyalties are. So Daniel 2, beginning in verse 1. We alive? Cool. Will's alive. All right. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, so this is early in Nebuchadnezzar's reign, so this means it's early in Daniel's time in, 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 in Babylon, which means Daniel's most likely still a teenager. He's most likely, he's still a young guy, okay? And so that makes what happens in this chapter all the more impressive, all the more amazing, because he's going to stand up in front of the most, po- uh, the most powerful man in the world as a teenager. Nebuchadnezzar had a dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his Sleep left him, then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dream. So, 
So Nebuchadnezzar is a typical tyrant. If he's not happy, nobody else is going to be happy. He's like Pharaoh before him. He's like Herod after him. And every tyrant that comes after him, Nebuchadnezzar's not happy, nobody's going to be happy. And he has this situation where he has this dream, but apparently he can't remember the dream. Don't you hate that feeling, by the way, when you wake up and you're like, man, I know that dream was important, but I can't. What was it? And so, and so it's killing him. So he, he, uh, he brings his magicians and his conjurers, his enchanters. That word enchanter, by the way, for Sweetwater folks, that word enchanter means snake charmer. So there's a little connection that we have uh, with him. He, ca- he calls these people in and he says, hey, I, don't, I, I want you to tell me about the dream I had. And they said, sure, just tell us the dream. We'll interpret it. I mean, we're good at that. And he said, no, I want you to not just interpret the dream, but I want you to tell me what dream I had and then interpret it. And they're like, well, I mean, no, but let's be fair, nobody can do this. And he says, well, either you're going to do it, or all the wise men are going to be torn limb from limb, and their houses are going to be bulldozed. Now, that seems like a proportionate response, doesn't it? Um, that's, that's what a tyrant does. King Nebuchadnezzar is a typical tyrant. Picture the worst boss ever. Remember when Dwight Schrute in the office got put in charge of choosing the health care plan for everybody? And just like that little bit of power went to his head and, and, he, and he like slashes everybody's benefits. And, and this is like if Dwight Schrute was king of, of, of Babylon, okay? Uh, he, he, he says, I'm just going to kill, I've got all the best people around me and I'm just going to kill them. All these wise men, all these, all these uh, magi, all these magicians, I'm just going to kill them if they can't give me what I want. Well, the problem for Daniel is this includes Daniel because even though Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're, they're in Babylon, they're not of Babylon, uh, they're, they're not like these other enchanters and sorcerers and all that, but they are wise. God's given them wisdom. They're not like the Babylonians, but they've proven to be indispensable in the kingdom. So if all these wise men get killed, Daniel and his friends are going to get killed too. The, the magicians, verse 11, say, the, king, the thing that the king asks is difficult, no one can show it to the king except the gods, and they don't live in this neighborhood. All right? Verse 12, because of this, the king was angry, furious, commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out. The wise men were about to be killed. Throughout the book of Daniel, there's this theme of suffering followed by vindication. You're going to see it in this chapter. We see it when Daniel and his friends get thrown in the fiery furnace. We're going to see it when Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den. There's this, Daniel's this picture of God's people who suffer and then are vindicated. And we're going to find that Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of that, the one who goes to the cross on our behalf, suffers on our behalf, and then rises again. Um, so he's going to round up all the, all the wise men. Verse 16, um, basically Daniel says to the captain of the king's guard, hey, what, why are we in such a hurry to kill all of us? Daniel gets access to the king, verse 16, requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So Daniel, teenage Daniel, marched in front of the king who wants to kill all the wise men, and he says, hey, Tell me the date, and I'll have an answer to you. So the, the magicians, the sorcerers, the enchanters, they know that they can't deliver on this. I mean, they're great at reading the tea leaves. They're great at like doing some magic tricks. And if you tell them the dream, they can even give you a pretty good interpretation because they read the newspaper in one hand and, and, and your dream in the other. But they know that none of them can like tell somebody what dream they had and give them the interpretation. And so Nebuchadnezzar has been surrounded by these idolaters throughout his whole regime, and he's relied on them, and he's counted on them, but now they are letting him down. And there comes a point in our life when our idolatry fails us, when things that have been working no longer work anymore. And so Nebuchadnezzar's response to that was rage. Anybody ever feel rage when your idol gets toppled over? Yes. The magicians and the sorcerers' response was fear. 
what are we going to do? When the impossible happens, um, it's revealed where we place our confidence. Nebuchadnezzar threatens, puts everybody in an impossible situation. So think about when you were in an impossible situation last. Have you been in an impossible situation? Maybe it was a situation that felt impossible at the time. Maybe it was finance-related, health-related, work-related, child gets a diagnosis that, that just you know, blows your mind. Maybe it was a relationship that crumbles, whatever. Maybe it was a death and you think, how can I ever go on? How did you respond to that impossible situation? Well, again, Nebuchadnezzar, surrounded by idolaters, and it's been working up till now, but not, now it's not working anymore. And so now Daniel and his friends are about to die with all the other wise men. The impotence of these idolaters has been revealed, it's been exposed. They're incapable of meeting this challenge. So when you or I run into the impossible, our idols are exposed. Whatever we place our trust in is exposed. And there will come a point in every person's life, hear this, there will come a point in each of our lives where God, in his mercy, will place you in a situation where your idols cannot save you. God does not do this because he hates you. God does this because he loves you. Because he loves me. Because he loves us. He will put us in situations where the things that used to work don't work anymore. How will we respond to that? God uses the impossible in our lives. And we hate it. I hate it. But he uses the impossible in our lives to reveal who and what we really trust. Where is our confidence placed? So what does Daniel do? Verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but these are the names they're going to answer to when you see them next, okay? He told them to seek mercy from God of heaven, the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. So Daniel does three really, really, really important things here. When he finds himself in an impossible situation, Daniel does three really important things. So when you are placed in an impossible situation, or when you're Nebuchadnezzar, Anybody picture in a Nebuchadnezzar? Don't tell us who it is, but like when you're Nebuchadnezzar, and if I'm your Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sorry, but it, when, 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 uh, when you picture your Neb- when you're Nebuchadnezzar, um, uh, Alma was uh, calling Sonda Nebuchadnezzar last week when Sonda wouldn't let her get baptized last Sunday, but it all worked out. All right, so whoever your Nebuchadnezzar is, all right, when they say, do this impossible thing, how do we respond to that? Well, a lot of times we whine, don't we? We pout. We grumble, we gossip, we go gather our friends and say, well, can you believe what Nebuchadnezzar has us doing now? Well, and amazingly, that's not what Daniel and his friends do. They gather together and they seek the mercy of God. That's the measure of a true friend. That's the measure of true community. Anybody will wallow with you. Anyone will wallow with you. Daniel and his friends together seek God's mercy, even though this is, this is real. This is as real as it gets. And they seek God's mercy together. So he, he, Daniel um, reaches out to community when he faces an impossible situation. His community is pretty small, but it's community. He seeks God. They together seek God. They seek God's mercy. And then Daniel rests. How do we know Daniel rests? Well, because God gives him the answer in a dream, a vision of the night. 
Usually when I dream, I'm asleep, so I'm going to go out on a limb and say, he slept. When we face the impossible, we seek community. We seek God. And then we sleep. Rest. Commit your soul. Commit the situation to God's care. When you've done all you can do, rest. The center of this chapter, the climax of the chapter, isn't the revelation of the dream or the interpretation of the dream. This is the climax of the chapter. The climax of the chapter is Daniel and his friends seek God. They don't grumble, they don't whine, they don't pout, they don't complain, they don't roll over and play dead in the face of impossible. They seek God's mercy together and then they rest entrusting their fate to him. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. Verse 21, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might. You have made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. Where do we run when we face the impossible? The impossible reveals what we truly revere. And an encounter with the impossible exposes the impotence of our idolatry and calls us to trust the only one that can be trusted. So God reveals the mystery next. And in Daniel, verse 26, this teenager Walks before the king, verse 26, the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. Remember, Babylon's all about giving you a new name, changing your identity, conforming you. They give him a, a different name. He says, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen in its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, no. Don't you know there was some tension in the room when Daniel said that? Nebuchadnezzar does not like being told no, okay? No wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. So just hold the tension for that moment. Can you, can you imagine what Nebuchadnezzar's face is looking like in this moment? Can you imagine the, the tension in the room? Arioch, the king's guard, who took Daniel in there and said, Hey, I found the guy. He hears this. He's just like kind of slowly backing away from Daniel. This is a tense moment. But this is what teenage Daniel says next. But there is a God in heaven. Man, this just makes me want to just, just run up and just hug Daniel. Like Daniel is our spirit animal, okay? Like this is, the, this is like, wow. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. So Daniel's about to lay out the vision, but he says, look, I didn't do it. None of your people could do it. There's a God in heaven that did it. Daniel respectfully resists Babylon. And he's saying in a really respectful way, but in a really firm way, there is a true king, Neb, and you are not it. There is a true kingdom, and it's not yours. And this model of respectfully resisting Babylon is a model that we need to rediscover. Um, there's a Babylon, in, in, you know, culturally in our, in, our, in our, Babylon is this world system that's opposed to God, but there can also be Babylon church systems that are just as opposed to God just as opposed to God's way. And some of us are really good at resisting that, but our resistance comes out as rebellion. And if we've got a rebellious heart, God wants to cultivate in that rebellious heart. He wants to cultivate humility. Some of us are really good at the respect part, 
but we lay down and, and don't speak up when we need to speak up. And God wants to develop boldness. He wants to develop strength. He wants to develop backbone. And, and what God wants to develop in each of us is that we would become people who respectfully resist whatever way Babylon manifests itself. And Daniel's a great example. I can't, but there's a God in, in heaven who can. There's a true king. You're not it. And so Daniel goes on to lay out the dream. Verse 31, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, this statue, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you. Its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together with, were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Okay, so... First of all, Daniel said a couple verses back that this vision is about the latter days. Verse 28, the latter days. And so we need to ask ourselves, when Daniel says latter days, is he talking about days that were latter for him, but are past for us because he's 600 years before Christ? Or is he talking about days that are latter for him and latter for us? And I, I see confused looks, but if you can keep up with the uh, Avengers timeline, you can keep up with this. I promise you, you can. Okay? No, talk to me about infinity stones later if, you, if you're saying you can't. You can, okay? So... So, is Daniel talking about something that, that has already been, that was future from his perspective, but is past from our perspective? Or is he talking about something that is future for him and future for us? That's kind of the interpretive decision we have to make here. But we have to keep in mind that before we draw a line from Daniel straight to ourselves, and we, oh, latter days, well, that must mean latter day for me, we need to draw the line from Daniel to Jesus. How, how has Daniel been fulfilled in Christ? And from Daniel to Jesus, then to us, okay? And so Daniel predict. we know a couple things because Daniel's going to lay out the interpretation of this, of, this, of this dream. And we know a couple things off the bat. He says the head of gold represents Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And we know that the stone that comes and crushes the whole statue, is that stone represents the kingdom of God. And the other, uh, the other elements in there, the silver, the iron, the, the, the bronze, those represent successive kingdoms that are going to follow the Babylonian kingdom. All right, verse 36. Now this was a dream. Now we will tell the king the interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, the glory. I mean, Daniel's very respectful. Into whose hand he is given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you will arise after you. So, so um, the, the, the kingdoms, the, 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 the metals are, are less precious as we descend here. So most likely the silver section represents Persia, who's going to come along and defeat Babylon in a few years. A third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. Most likely, not everybody agrees on this, most likely that refers to Greece. Alexander the Great, who, 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 uh, who conquers the entire world, then he sits down and weeps that there's no more uh, worlds to conquer, right? Verse 40, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes it shall break and crush all these. And this most likely refers to the Roman Empire and, 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 and how Rome just, like no, like no force ever before it, had just run over the world with this brute force and just crushed everything. And you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron will be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. 
And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. We'll come back to this. As you saw, the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, which kings? The kings he's talking about right now. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor will the kingdom be left to another people. It will break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. It will stand forever, just as you saw that stone cut out from a mountain by no hand. And then it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, its interpretation sure. And so we know this, this stone that's going to come and crush all these kingdoms. We know this is Christ in his kingdom, but is that something that Christ did already 2,000 years ago? Or is that something Christ is gonna do one day? And the answer is, drum roll, yes. Okay? Um, he, uh, something really important happened during the days of the Roman Empire, that kingdom of iron. Right? We, something really important happened. Jesus was born in that time period. And he lived a perfect life. Right? And he died an atoning death on what? A Roman cross. But he rose up from the grave. And he said that his kingdom has come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that kingdom is that stone that started out as a little stone that hit that Roman Empire. And that marriage between clay and iron possibly refers to this wicked union between Rome and the, and, and, the, and the Jewish authorities that conspired together to crucify Jesus and his stone that comes and crushes in the days of that kingdom has been expanding and expanding and expanding even when it looks like Thanos is winning. Even when it looks like death is winning, his kingdom is growing into a mountain which will one day fill this entire earth and we get to be part of that now and forever, okay? And so... How does this vision impact our politics? All human kingdoms have feet of clay. There's no human kingdom. There's no human empire. There's no political party that has the power to save or transform you. Jesus is the king. We, we saw a Lion King quote. You know this live action Lion King that's coming? You know, Saw the preview for that. And there's a great line in there. Mufasa says, While others search for what they can take, a true king searches for what he can give. While others search for what they can take, a true king searches for what he can give. So in Matthew 21, Jesus, the true king, applies this, and, and um, Brian read this passage earlier. The latter part of Matthew 21, I think verses 42 through 46, Jesus applies this very stone image to himself and what he was doing. The stone that the builder rejected has now become the cornerstone. He said, whoever that stone falls on is going to what? be crushed. That's Daniel 2. He launched something at the cross, at the resurrection that is growing and is unstoppable. But when Jesus went about, so isn't it amazing that Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold, is rotting in a grave somewhere? Well, he rotted a long time ago, didn't he? He's dust. But Jesus is alive. Jesus went about crushing earthly kingdoms in the most unexpected of ways. He was crushed on your behalf. Isaiah 53 says that he bore our sin and he was crushed for our iniquity. The one who came to crush earthly kingdoms did so by allowing that vicious earthly kingdom to crush him. God's wrath crushed Jesus. Not only did the Romans 
and the Jewish elite conspire together to crush Jesus. God's wrath crushed Jesus so that the curse on your life could be crushed. And so whether you have built your kingdom on righteousness, doing the right thing, or you've built your kingdom on unrighteousness and living your own way, whether you're the older brother or the prodigal son, Jesus is the stone that will crush your peewee league kingdom so that you can be part of something real and something lasting and something forever. Jesus was crushed for you. And when we look at Christ on the cross, we see that that was my cross. That was my penalty. That was my curse that he bore. He allowed himself to be crushed. And when we realize that, his grace crushes us. His grace crushes you, crushes your and my willfulness. It crushes our, our, our own kingdom. When you look at Jesus on the cross, that grace crushes you, and he crushes you so that he can cure you. And there was a time in my life when I saw the cross with fresh eyes, with the eyes not of, uh, of, of someone worthy, but of someone unworthy, with the eyes of a beggar, And the weight of that crushed me, cured me, began the work of transformation. And that stone has been growing and growing and growing in me ever since. When your kingdom gets crushed, you can find refuge in the unshakable kingdom of the one true king. So as we wrap up, evil kings like Nebuchadnezzar demand the impossible of their followers. But good kings demand the impossible too. Jesus is the best king. And he demands the impossible from you. But he doesn't just demand the impossible and then throw a fit when you can't do it. He demands the impossible and he gives you everything you need for life and godliness. He gives you the same spirit that raised him from the dead. So that you can be a person who is transformed into his image. He demands the impossible of you and then he gives you what you need to accomplish it. He demands that you repent and believe. You can't do that. I can't do that. It's only by the power of his spirit working in a heart that you truly repent and return to him. He demands that you receive forgiveness and that you extend forgiveness to others. It's a work of God's spirit that shows you and me that we need his forgiveness and it's a deep work of God's spirit that it makes us to be the kind of people who extend forgiveness to others. It's not optional. He demands it. He demands that you do the impossible thing of loving your enemy and forgiving the one that's hurt you but you can't do that on your own. He does that impossible work through you if you let him. He demands radical generosity. This king demands the impossible that self-centered people who only want our own stuff, that we would become people who lay down our lives for one another, that we become radically generous people, not by power, not by might, but by work of his spirit in your heart. He demands that we do the impossible work of fulfilling the great commission, making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So now what? What does somebody say? What are the words of someone who has seen that Christ has been crushed for them and then who is crushed by Christ? This is what that person says, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live that life by the faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. As the band comes up, I want you to hear these words from another, another man who was crushed by Christ. Uh, a, a missionary from about 100 years ago, a little over 100 years ago. His name is C.T. Studd. Now, how many guys in here wish Studd was your last name, right? C.T. Studd. And he became a missionary. He said, nail the colors to the mast. In other words, that's sailing imagery for refuse to give up. Nail the colors to the mast. What colors? The colors of Christ. The work he has given us to do, the evangelization of the unevangelized. Christ wants not nibblers of the possible, but grabbers of the impossible. How about that? Christ isn't looking for nibblers of the possible, but grabbers of the impossible by faith in the omnipotence, fidelity, and wisdom of the Almighty Savior who gave the command, is there a wall in our path by our God? We will leap over it. Are there lions and scorpions in our way? We will trample them down under our feet. There's a mountain bar of progress saying, Be thou cast into the sea, we will march on. Soldiers of Jesus, never surrender. Nail the colors to the mast. So what colors are nailed to your mast? Are they your family colors? Are they your nation colors? Or are they the colors of Christ? Bought with His blood. Uh, a dear woman... Uh, passed away yesterday, Rachel Held Evans, a, 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 an inspirational Christian uh, author, teacher. She went to be with the Lord and once upon a time she wrote these words about what kind of kingdom Jesus came to establish. She said, this is what God's kingdom is like. Listen, the stone that comes and crushes and fills, this is what it's like. A bunch of outcasts and oddballs gathered at a table not because they are rich or worthy or good, but because they are hungry, because they said yes, and there's always room for more.